A bit of a different start. Welcome to Blind Squirrel Macro the Pod, our usual companion to the weekly newsletter, which you can find for free at blindsquirrelmacro.com. Squirrel here on the morning of Tuesday, the 5th of, Mel- um, 5th of February, Melbourne time. First, the usual message from legal. Everything in this podcast is for educational and entertainment purposes only and is categorically not investment advice. Before making any investment decisions, for heaven's sakes, don't listen to a cartoon rodent talk to a financial advisor. Now, the musical intro to this week's pod is, of course, the title track of Pink Floyd's 1979 rock opera classic, The Wall. The song that a nine-year-old squirrel thought meant he did not have to go to school. I promise it'll all make sense in the end. Well, sort of. Now, it would possibly be also fair to say that last week's big week in macro did not disappoint at all. First, we have interest rates, with probabilities of a March interest rate cut now falling to a mere 20%, having been at over 80% barely a fortnight ago. The fact that Jay Powell's hawkishness came as, surpri- came as a surprise to a market used to timely leaks whenever market pricing is out of line with their desired messaging made matters even more dramatic. Then we have Facebook, which started the week terribly, accused in the US Senate of having blood on its hands, and then ended the week setting a record for the largest single-day market cap gain in history, $205 billion of market cap gain on a day where they beat earnings, by sh- earnings per share by a mere 10.5%. In case you're interested, Apple was number two um, on, that, on that list of records, with $190 billion of gains back in November of 22. It also occupied positions 5, 6, and 7 on the top 10. Then we had Friday's payrolls number which blew the doors off consensus expectations for employment and was accompanied by some chunky upward revisions to the December numbers, as well as some stubbornly uncomfortable inflationary indicators in the hourly wages data. And yes, I I do understand and indeed sympathise with those of you with bearish takes on that data. We even had another regional banking scare. This time, New York Community Bank Corp saw its share price half midweek on souring commercial real estate loans. But this was not enough to prevent U.S. 10-year yields closing the week on their highs. Now, with U.S. economic growth continuing to look perky, according to the GDP Nowcast, the latest reading from Atlanta is 4.22%, must we now prepare ourselves for a few more quarters of elevated interest rates? Are we now back in a Goldilocks world of above-trend growth paired with falling inflation? Now, the squirrel freely confesses to his ingrained inflation Easter biases, but there can be no doubt that the indicators are now pointing back down while oil prices remain depressed. Now, question how long this can remain the case, particularly in the context of resurgent U.S. growth. Then we have the news last week that one of the last major Wall Street bears, Morgan Stanley strategist Mike Wilson, was announcing that he's throwing in the towel and leaving the firm's investment committee. He was on a panel at the Miami Eye Connections conference last week with Jeffrey's shaggy-bearded rock star strategist Dave Zervos. Zervos channeling his inner ZZ top and sporting a Jerome Powell the King trucker's cap, clearly no irony intended there by Dave the Fed cheerleader. He also called QE, interestingly, a magic elixir. 
you just know he was trolling the Austrian economists and the, and the Fed crew there. Dave is encouraging investors to strap back on the risk, believing that one, a soft landing has been achieved, two, that inflation is tamed, and three, that the Fed has 5% of rate cutting and balance sheet firepower as a backstop if markets do end up rolling over. An exhausted Mike Wilson, on the other hand, appeared to be counting down the days until he's safely on the beach and out of the forecasting business. Now, truckers' caps are a bit of a trademark for Zervos. Last year's headgear merch was adorned with the word junk as he exhorted clients to embrace the risks of high-yield debt. Turns out that that was a pretty good call. Broad junk spreads have indeed tightened considerably in the past 18 months. Now, I've written about the vodka Red Bull or twin track economies before. There's no doubt that the current state of the economy in the US feels very different if you're a motorman or a mudman in the Permian oil basin instead of a Manhattan-based commercial real estate executive. The former is living his best life. Life for the latter is getting pretty goddamn existential. Time is the killer. As my friend Chase Taylor of Pinecone Macro likes to say, interest rates don't matter until you have to pay them. For the U.S. consumer, exposure to the higher rates is largely discretionary unless circumstances force a new house or a new car purchase. Compared to consumers elsewhere in the world, U.S. borrowers are much less exposed to variable rates. 89% of U.S. consumer debt is fixed rate. Fixed rate mortgages are definitely a superpower for the U.S. consumer. Life in Sydney, Stockholm or Sheffield feels very different indeed. In the corporate world, $200 billion of fixed-rate high-yield debt needs to be rolled over this year. According to data from Apollo, this is only a marginal increase on the fixed-rate amount that rolled off in 2023, as around 60% of the 2024 balance is already on a floating rate. We're not yet in a position whereby we could safely forecast any kind of buyer's strike for this new paper. While credit spreads are almost certainly skinny relative to history, All-in investment-grade yields of around 5.3% are at the upper quartile of absolute levels relative to the past 10 years. Indeed, investors are returning to the credit markets in their droves. Bank of America's fund flow data points to over $43 billion in in the last four weeks alone, the largest inflow in three and a half years. But will what remains of the refinancing cohort be able to afford the new rate environment? assuming we stay up here for longer. Total and net leverage levels for this universe is down from the pandemic peak, but still at very elevated levels versus the last 25 years. Now, the Squirrel has not done a line-by-line analysis of the high-yield refinancing pipeline, um, and, of course, analysis of private borrowers is much harder. However, a quick analysis of IWM, the Russell 2000 ETF and its constituents, shows that 7% of those constituents have a negative Altman Z score, and 8% have interest cover uh, by that, I'm using EBITDA minus CAPEX over interest, express, uh, over interest expense of less than one turn. It's tough not to imagine some kind of increased pickup in default rates. Is this the chink in the maturity wall? There you go. That's it. That's the squirrel finally making his podcast title relevant. I have reimagined the chorus of the wall with, a, with I'm afraid, a very profound and deep apology to Roger Waters. We don't need more duration. We don't need more DD. No dark sarcasm in the boardroom. Hey, Gary, 
that's Gensler, leave those marks alone and not at Blackstone. Just looking for those yields to um, enthrall, just waiting for the maturity wall. Okay, apology over. Back to macro. So growth would appear okay, and risks of imminent credit, credit events outside of commercial real estate and the regional banking complex seem manageable. What about that much-anticipated rollover in corporate earnings? The U.S. big tech, Apple and Tesla aside, are saying, hold my beer. Having got through the guts of Q4 earnings season, it is clear to those looking for a collapse in corporate profitability that we're going to once again have to wait. Like the relentless quasi-fascistic hammers in the wall video, large-cap U.S. tech earnings march onto new highs with almost a 40% EPS growth in Q4. This earnings growth is supported by that overwhelming effect in passive investment-dominated markets of today, the unrelenting and largely price-insensitive bid from corporate share buybacks. In the case of Facebook, it almost seems absurd to suggest that the announced $50 billion buyback could make a difference to a company that increased its market cap by $200 billion on Friday alone. However, marginal fund flows do matter tremendously. Last week in Going to Need a Bigger Narrative, we discussed how market strategists were reaching for new valuation paradigms to justify chasing the market leaders in semiconductors and large-cap tech. My friend Harris Kupperman, a.k.a. Cuppy, wrote a great blog last week about the existential risks facing managers of benchmark money that do not chase those marching hammers. I quote, did my, ever, did my friend ever buy NVIDIA? I assume he did. It was probably the day of a local peak when he couldn't take the pain any longer, right before a nasty pullback. He likely swept the book and then got drunk. I'm almost sure the pain of missing got the better of him, and he paid up. One can never underestimate the pain of underperformance. Now, the squirrel's in the fortunate position of not being enslaved by a benchmark, and it's pretty much 100% certain that you do not read or listen to Blind Squirrel Macro for my detailed views on the Magnificent Seven and their earnings. However, it looks increasingly like 2024 will be another year in which this asset class is ignored at your peril, or at least at risk of serious fear of missing out. Let's not forget that we've already learnt the hard way that high interest rates are not necessarily a headwind for this group. Shorting U.S. equities, of course, remains a landmine-rich environment. I have a couple of small put positions on, but it does not feel like a tape that you can possibly afford to fight at this stage. I suspect that signs of resurgent inflation is really what is needed to slay the animal spirits. I also know that none of you would forgive yourselves for piling into these names at the top. But a proactive hedging strategy against missing out on further gains in this group has to be taken seriously. I'll be publishing a hedge idea on this later this week. The recommended diet may be unpalatable, but it's probably necessary. And to play on the words of the angry Scottish schoolteacher from the Wall's original video, Wrong! Do it again! If you don't eat your Mag 7, you can't have any returns! How can you have any returns if you don't eat your Mag 7? Now, interestingly, I'd always thought that the Scottish voice on that video was performed by Billy Connolly. It turns out that it was actually Roger Waters himself. Another fun fact, since we're doing them, is about the original album cover for The Wall. The original was just plain, just the brick effect. The graffiti-style lettering designed by cartoonist Gerald Scarf was just a sticker on the original sleeve wrapping.
Anyway, that's all for this week on the pod. In the second part of the written note for paid subs this week, I preview a new theme, which I'm pretty excited about, on an AI-related space. Review a week of mixed fortunes in the various energy equity sectors. A great week for refiners, but a brutal week for the drillers. And take another look at food inflation and ags. Please find out more about Blind Squirrel at blindsquirrelmacro.com. You can also follow me on Twitter at Squirrel Macro. Thanks for listening. Squirrel out.